Well, our scripture passage tonight comes from the book of Genesis, from a story that I'm sure is familiar to many in this room, the story of Joseph and his brothers. It's a long story, and we pick it up towards the end. So what you need to know about what comes before the passage we're about to read is that the main character of sorts, Joseph, is sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers, you see, are jealous of Joseph's sort of favored status as the favored son of their father. And so one day out in the fields, they sell Joseph to a slave trader. And they go home, and they lie to their father. They tell their father that Joseph has been killed. He was devoured, I think is the word, devoured by wild animals. It's an unfortunate end, but it's not true. But for his brothers, it might as well be. Joseph is gone, out of sight, out of mind. But of course, we the readers know that Joseph is not dead. He's sold into Egypt, into the house of Pharaoh, and over time he gains favor with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he eventually rises to become one of Pharaoh's highest-ranking officials, a governor. And so we pick up the story tonight at a time when uh, many years have passed since that initial episode out in the field. And there is now this great famine that has overtaken the region, including where Joseph's brothers still call home. And so they make this journey to Egypt because they've heard that in Egypt there's this wealthy supply of grain. And so they go to Egypt to buy the grain in order to feed their family. And when they arrive, they find themselves doing business with none other than their long-lost brother, Joseph. But at first... They don't recognize him. So listen now for a word from the Lord. A reading from Genesis chapter 45, verses 4 through 8. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. I love that language, to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. The word of God for the people of God. So as I mentioned during the announcements, we're in the midst of this sermon series on the Lord's Prayer where we take a look at each line of the prayer and we ask, what is this line, this ancient line saying to us today? We started two weeks ago with the opening petition, Our Father who art in heaven. And we talked about how this language of father is not necessarily meant to be this patriarchal statement, this patriarchal status that God wields over us, but rather a statement that God is in relationship with us as a parent is with a child. And that as a result, we are called to be in community and to be in relationship with our neighbors. Then last week, Will dived in to the second line, hallowed or hallowed, depending on your reading, be thy name. We ask, what exactly does it mean for us that God actually does have a name? 
It means that we worship a real God, a God that we can identify and pray to by name, and a God who knows us by name. And now tonight we arrive at that next part of the Lord's Prayer, where we pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. It's a bit of a mouthful, and to be honest, it's a little bit hard to know where to even start with this. It's particularly difficult because kingdom language shows up a lot in Scripture. Jesus especially seems to have an affinity for referring to the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And as usual, when Jesus has something to say, it tends to just mess things up for us. Because the passages where he uses this kingdom language are either just straight up confusing, and I'll give you an example of that in a moment, or they're spoken in a way that seems awfully harsh and hard to hear for our contemporary ears. For example, in Luke, Jesus says, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then earlier in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, that that passage we, we were taught the Lord's Prayer later in the Sermon on the Mount, and earlier before we got to that point, Jesus pronounces, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he compares the kingdom of God, and I quote, to yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. That's the confusing one. I don't know what to do with that. Even this past week, I was driving back from Jacksonville, and I saw this billboard on the side of I-95, and it was one of those big billboards with uh, a black background and just white block letters that said, it was a quote from the Gospel of John, it said, Jesus said, except a man born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What do we do with all of these? What exactly are we praying for when we pray, your kingdom come? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is it something that we're striving for in the future? Is it something that's supposed to be right here, right now? And if it is here and now, then is it something that only some of us can see? Or is it something that we all can see? So to begin to explore these questions, I think we have to start with those first two words. Your kingdom. The Lord's Prayer up until this point has not been terribly controversial. I think we've all been able to nod our heads politely enough to things like we're called to share the love of God with others, that we're meant to hallow God's name. But now suddenly and quite unexpectedly and unavoidably, I think, things get a little political with this word kingdom. Suddenly, our prayer has gone from the spiritual to the very real material world because we, we, all of us, hear about and encounter and interact with different kingdoms every day of our lives, right? We turn on the news and hear about the latest developments in Syria or Egypt where people are fighting for rule of that nation. We're used to opening up our issue of Business Week and reading about the latest king or queen of industry. Just last week on CNBC, I watched a little bit of it, I'll admit, uh, there was a show called Big Mac Inside the McDonald's Empire. We can't avoid kingdoms in our lives. Just like Joseph and his brothers, we live in the midst of earthly kingdoms. 
Kingdoms that compete for our allegiance and our fidelity. Kingdoms that are dominated many times by things like greed and jealousy, land and status. Now, they're not always bad, but in one way or another, these earthly kingdoms are almost always about gathering up and holding on to power. But our prayer seems to point to a kind of kingdom that is different from the ones that we know here on earth. Your kingdom, we pray. The six weeks of this liturgical season of Lent that we're currently in are traditionally modeled after the 40 days that Jesus spends in the wilderness being tempted by the devil after his baptism in the Jordan. And at one point during that period, Jesus is taken up onto a high mountain and the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, Jesus, if only you will bow down and worship me, will I give you all authority and glory of these kingdoms. Will Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas, who I've mentioned here before, write in their book, Lord, teach us that in that moment, Jesus refused to worship Satan, even if the, even if the reward was complete power as the world defines power. Rather than running the kingdoms of the world, Jesus went about establishing a new kingdom. A kingdom in this world, yet not of it, they write. What he called the kingdom of God. God comes into this world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and in doing so, ushers in a new kind of kingdom. A kingdom that frankly runs counter to the kingdoms you and I and everyone we know are most familiar with and frankly comfortable with in our everyday lives. In Jesus, we're introduced to this kingdom that refuses to worship earthly forms of power, to a kingdom that breaks down these artificial borders and boundaries that we set up for ourselves, a kingdom that practices humility rather than arrogance, a kingdom based on faith in God the Father to the point of death on a cross. Just like Joseph's brothers who don't recognize him, even as they stand face to face with him, we're oftentimes blind to this kingdom. We hold on so tightly to our earthly kingdoms that we miss the work of God's kingdom unfolding all around us. And so in praying these two words, your kingdom, I hear an invitation to let go to let go of those other kingdoms that you worship, to let go of those other powers that you hold on to so desperately. When we let go, we adopt this posture of openness. And in this posture, we allow God's kingdom to break into the world. There was an obituary last October in the New York Times, and it was for a man named Eric Lomax. Eric was one of thousands of British soldiers who surrendered to the Japanese army in Singapore during World War II. And shortly after his capture, he was moved to Thailand, where he and his fellow prisoners were forced to build the Burma Railroad. It was an episode that would eventually become famous in the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai. And during his captivity, Eric in particular endured horrendous torture and torment from his captors, and particularly from one man named Nagasi Takashi. 
Lomax would later write in his book years later that following the war, he would have been happy to murder Nagasi. And in fact, he spent years fantasizing about when he would meet this man face to face again. And then in 1993, Eric Lomax read an article about Nagasi which said that the now old Japanese man had been racked with guilt about his treatment of one prisoner in particular. And so a meeting between the two was arranged. And this is what Lomax writes in his book about the first time he met Nagasi all those years later after the war. Lomax says, I had come with no sympathy for this man, and yet Nagasi, through his complete humility, turned this around. In the days that followed, we spent a lot of time together talking and laughing. We promised to keep in touch and have remained friends ever since. A posture of openness, of letting go and allowing the kingdom, God's kingdom, a kingdom which offers forgiveness as radical as this, as radical as Joseph forgiving his brothers. The kingdom that replaces torture and war with peace. This posture of openness allows the kingdom of God to break into the world. Some of you might be thinking, well, you've only talked about the first two words. What, what happens next, right? And you're right, because of course... We haven't told the whole story just yet. The prayer continues, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God breaks into the world through people like Eric Lomax and Nagasi Takashi, through people like Joseph and his brothers, through people like us, and yet the kingdom is not yet fully realized. I'm always struck in the story of Joseph and his brothers about just how surprised those siblings must have been when the fog finally lifted and they recognized the ruler before them for who he really was. You see, they thought the story of Joseph was over. They thought he was as good as dead as soon as they sold him off to that slave trader. They thought they had crafted the ultimate outcome, the fate of their brother. And now, here he is, not only alive, but in a position to share the power to preserve their lives. Joseph assures them that this is not on account of anything they did, but rather what God has done. I imagine that their momentary terror must have gradually given way to a mix of relief, of joy, of ecstasy at the forgiveness offered by their brother. There's a sweetness at the end of the story. In the reunion of these siblings, we here tonight are reminded of the promise that the full arc of God's kingdom is yet to be fully realized, but that one day it will that Christ will return and it will be as sweet as the moment those brothers' eyes were first opened to Joseph. But for now, we live at an intersection of hope and patience. For now, we are like the brothers on that road between home and between the bounty and Egypt, on the path that at times seems unbearably hot 
and dry. And this story is also a testament that God's will for the world is one of love and restoration. It's not something that we can control or predict, but it is something that we can trust. The story of an oh-so-human family feud that leads to a realization of God's larger purpose for creation. A testament that even in the face of death and deceit and hunger, God's hand is at work in the world in such a way that life is preserved. So that billboard I saw off I-95 was right in one sense. The kingdom of God can be at times hard to see in the blur of our everyday lives. But there is a place in this in-between where we are invited to come and glimpse the kingdom of God at the table. For those of you who were here last week, you might agree, I saw the kingdom of God right in this room as we moved chairs and set up tables. As we sat around those tables with friends and strangers, as we prepared food for others and received food that was prepared for us, for a brief moment, we opened ourselves to each other and to the work of God's kingdom. And so it's fitting that tonight we will share another meal together. This meal is prepared by Christ himself. It's a meal that we are all invited to. It's a meal that will both nourish us for the kingdom work that is before us here and now on earth, but also one that will give us a foretaste of the great kingdom feast that is yet to come. So thanks be to God. Amen.